Good afternoon, it's Dr. Andrew Matheson here with the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. So covering a few different topics today, a little bit on flavonoids and polyphenols, a little bit on the microbiome and a little bit on fasting dieting. We're going to start with the flavonoids. So many of you will be aware, um, subclass of the polyphenols, often something that we talk about is this should be good for cardiovascular risk. And the first article that I wanted to talk about was looking at uh, flavonoids and global cognition. And it was published in Neurology and it was Association of Dietary Intake of Flavanols with Changes in Global Cognition and Several Cognitive Abilities. And this was looking at 961 participants, uh, ages 60 to 100, part of a, a large memory and aging project. And what they showed was that they're met with dietary intakes, higher dietary intakes of total flavonoids and several flavonol constituents may be associated with slower decline in global cognition and multiple cognitive abilities with older age, which is probably what we'd be expecting. Uh, It was a nice article, good numbers, and they adjusted well for a lot of things that previous articles might not have, not just uh, sort of age, sex, um, physical activity, smoking, but also APOE4 and a few other things. Now, this is one of these articles that then forces you to kind of go back and, and remind yourself what, what is it about the flavonoids, how, how do they work, and, and what have we seen before, and what have the worries been about um, high levels of flavonoids. So the, the, for a while, since the sort of mid-90s, has been a view that they may help reduce the risk of coronary heart disease. Um, and then there was a Dutch uh, study which showed an inverse correlation between flavonoids and um, coronary heart disease after the sort of initial study by Acker et al. So it is one of these ones that was put forward, quite popular to be put forward as a reason between reason for difference in heart disease between the UK and other European countries, especially using sort of wine and intake of flavonoids um, as a as a reason for why there might be a higher mortality and higher cardiovascular disease. Um, this was also the time when other antioxidants were uh, very um, attractive and vitamin E was the one that probably comes to mind and, and most people will remember what happened with that when the, there was this sort of change from this this is great, it needs to be everywhere to oh actually this seems to lead to higher rates of lung cancer in smokers and that sort of dawning that this, this is quite a, a complicated model and yes antioxidants may be good um, we may want to prevent the damage they do but they may also be tidying up the damaged cause by things like smoking and preventing cancer and if we cut back on the levels um, of, of antioxidants we may be more likely um, in people at high risk of cancer to get cancers and that was um, I think what most of us would how most of us would think about the vitamin E question so the the fact that flavanols seem to oh, this I think it's still accepted that they're, they're, a, they're in general a good thing and most studies seem to suggest that they prevent vascular uh, problems I, I'm guessing that that's what's going on here as well um, and 
are you less likely to get uh, sort of that stepwise change of, sort of vascular dementia um, with higher intakes of flavonoids? I, I guess so. Um, and kind of there was another article along the same lines talking about the, the vascular impact of flavonoids. Um, it was called uh, higher habitual dietary flavonoid intakes associates with less extensive abdominal aortic calcification in a cohort of older women. Um, and that was in uh, Journal of uh, Arteriosclerosis, uh, Thrombosis and Vascular Biology um, with uh, Parmenta as the uh, first author. And that again was just saying that greater habitual dietary flavonoid intake w was associated with less extensive um, aortic aneurysm calcification. So does this antioxidant seem to have over time an, an impact on the vessels that might lead to cognitive delay, memory loss, uh, aortic calcification? So uh, one of these ones that then sort of I, I sort of step back and I have to say this is a little quick um, mention for the sort of first book I always go to with these things. It's the Asker You Can Drop book, Sports Nutrition, wrote with Mike Gleason, um, and just remind myself of what their views were on flavonoids, free radicals, and and where they fit in. The next article I found looked more at flavonoids and just in in athletes. Where's where do we feel that flavonoids are at the moment and what is the evidence for, for our sports uh, sportsmen and women? There was a really nice little, uh, well, little, it was quite a long summary um, and it was called, uh, does flavonoid consumption improve exercise performance? Is it related to changes in the immune system and inflammatory biomarkers? A systematic review of clinical studies since 2005. First author Ruiz Inglesias, last author Perez Cano, and that was study published in Nutrients uh, in 2021. And that um, looked at 51 studies, 54 articles, and essentially what they said was the data isn't good enough. Uh, in untrained subjects, there does seem to be an uh, improvement, but in the studies looking at trained athletes, it, it doesn't seem to uh, go one way or the other, which uh, seems to often see, be what we see in some of these antioxidant studies for, for performance. But uh, obviously with, with some of our flavonoids, and particularly our caffeine, we know that there's other ways in which those bits may be working. So will I, will I be going out of my way to tell my athletes to have tea, dark chocolate, coffee for the flavonoids? Probably not. Um, if they like them and they say, is this safe in the long term? I'll say, yes, um, there's plenty of good data that coffee is, is teas that are good for your uh, general health in the long term and these add to that idea that if you're someone who's worried about uh, cognitive decline then yes keep going keep having your tea keep having your coffee um, often as is in the case with these things as I was reading around it I kind of fell down a little rabbit hole and, and one which I'll just touch on here um, it was a uh, Many of you, have, I'm sure, have listened to uh, Peter Attia, who, who does an excellent podcast. And on his website, I was just looking at what other confounding factors could there be. And he pointed towards actually the, the way you prepare your coffee. And I've seen a few, this a few times where people had said um, different filtration techniques um, lead to different uh, levels of um, cafestol, um, and anti without which has antioxidant anti-inflammatory effects and 
actually French press coffee and espresso uh, don't filter them out as much. Um, and I, I did one of those things which is sometimes a, a quite a useful exercise and I recommend to, to everyone just to say, right, well, there's a reference there. I'm going to follow it and see how long it takes me to get to the actual data that this, this comment's based on. Um, and, and actually it wasn't too bad. It just took, it took three, three articles chasing down to find the actual, the actual evidence. And it was, it was pretty weak for that. It essentially was a article by, uh, Rendon et al. I'll just uh, get our physical ca characteristics of the paper filter and low cafestol content filter coffee brews. Just looking at how much cafestol and dipertine um, came through on the filter papers of different countries. Uh, and actually they were originally going at it from a slightly different perspective and that was that actually is there a link with higher cholesterol and lipid results having coffee that is unfiltered so rather than as Peter Attio is saying is that it's a it's a, a problem filtering out these these compounds they were they were saying the other way around at that point I jumped out of the rabbit hole because uh, it was starting to feel like it was all closing in and move, moved on to my next my next subject and uh, we'll do that as well today. So the next one, it was looking at the microbiome, and this was a Nature article. A microbiome-dependent gut-brain pathway regulates motivation for exercise. And this was uh, it was in mice, it's not in humans, um, and it was a team um, with the uh, under Chris Christoph Thace, um And using mice, they think they've sort of come up with a pathway by which the gut microbiome can influence the desire to train. Sounds like a very interesting move forward. Um, I have to say it was some of it definitely felt a bit beyond me but what I think I will take away from that is if I get people saying you know what I don't really feel like training after antibiotics maybe that is a mechanism by which which that may be working. Maybe I need to be a bit more careful. So in, when you're working with athletes, there's a, a real temptation to constantly jump in and give some antibiotics because the athlete knows that actually, yes, it's prob it, it may well be a viral infection, but if it's not, I don't want to have to go through a bacterial illness and wait until someone finally twigs on it. And if you look at the, the data, this giving antibiotics might save you a day of symptoms. Now, that's not a good reason to treat someone, which is why we, we try so hard not to give antibiotics, um, certainly within the, within the NHS and the drivers of antibiotic resistance. Um, but sometimes it's quite hard to, to persuade the athlete that because they, they want what they see as a quick fix. Often what I'll try to say to them is, yes, it may be a, a quick fix for some of your symptoms. It may help them prove it may give you a bit more confidence to, to restart your training, but that isn't uh, firstly the the obvious that that isn't how we should be judging how hard we train um we 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 look at all the other the other factors and um what sort of training you're doing what are your numbers like etc cetera, etc cetera. but also what what's the damage that you can cause with it and you can say look antibiotics might give you give you a bit of diarrhea um they will have an impact on your microbiome 
normally I'll do that with it and then they'll have an impact on your ability to your microbiome's ability to pull all the goodness it can out of your food but then there's an interesting additional one now where I can say actually there is some growing evidence that that changing your microbiome with these antibiotics might in fact cut down your ability to be motivated to train the, uh, the next article was another microbiome one, and nothing to do with sport, just uh, one that sort of makes you realise how little we know and how, how far we've got to go with it. So it was called Non-Lactobacillus Dominant and Polymicrobial Vaginal Microbiomes are more common in younger South African women and predictive increased risk of HIV via acquisition. And essentially just this idea and there's been a couple of other articles talking about it as well but there is an association between the vaginal microbiome and your susceptibility to HIV. Now it, it makes sense that the likelihood of, of HIV being transmitted would rely on getting through the mucous membrane which is covered by your, your microbiome um, but sometimes I think we, we forget just how important the microbiome is and how, how little we really understand about it and how important it will be um, for us to, to break that down. The next articles were moving on to um, more sports-related um, things, and it was called uh, The Use of Continuous Glucose Monitors in Sport, Possible Applications and Considerations. It was first officer Bowler, last officer Cox, and it had uh, Louise Burke as, as one of the authors. Now, I'm sure many of you, like me, will, will just be starting to get to grips with um, using continuous glucose monitors in non-diabetics. Um, Within diabetics, obviously, it's, it's pretty standard, and, and certainly the, um, uh, the ideas of the artificial pancreas linking up your continuous glucose monitor to your, your insulin, uh, insulin driver is, is had a huge impact on especially teenage uh, diabetics, and uh, nice guidelines in the UK essentially saying that this ought to be uh, technology that everyone has access to, although quite how that will happen, we don't know, but, but clearly it's the way forward. Now, within sports and within uh, non-diabetic patients, most of where I've been seeing the, the monitor being used has been in people doing fasted or ketotic diets and trying to get an idea of, of what foods in particular seem to really throw up their sugar levels. Uh, people st struggling maintain maintaining their ketosis. Okay, let's stick this on for a bit, keep a food diary and see, see when it jumps up. And it's a really easy way of finding out um, what's, what, what in particular throws up your, your blood sugars. And it's a little bit like um, the paper, and I've completely forgotten the professor's name, uh, runs all the large twin studies um, in the UK, uh, but they put out essentially everyone responds differently to different foods and we can we can make a guess, but it's not as simple as if we stick it in a calorimeter, if we burn this, we know exactly how much uh, it breaks down into protein, sugar and fat, then that's how much your, your sugar levels will go up and how much your insulin will go up. Everyone's, everyone's different because we absorb different amounts, we have different microbiomes, we break it down into different things, and then we, we all respond differently to, to the different inputs. Um, 
This article is really just talking about where they see it going, and there was quite a lot of focus on uh, low energy availability, and I can I can certainly see the attraction of that. Um, trying low energy availability is managed to avoid uh, anyone finding a, a sort of reliable and reproducible way of of labeling it um, until people are very obviously symptomatic. Um, and having something like a continuous glucose monitor um, giving an answer would, would be lovely. Uh, I wasn't particularly convinced and, and I'm not sure anyone that, that works with, with people um, at risk of low energy availability would would be surprised by that. Um, unfortunately, the, the thing you really need to uh, to know about low energy availability is to, to know the athlete and to know their training program um, and to know their training team and to really understand their sport. Um, the really hard things, um, the things that you can't do from a distance, the things you can't do um, at high volume, the things you can't do quickly in a clinic, the things that take the uh, team nutritionist uh, or, or the team dietitian and, or another member in the team who's there day in, day out to, to, to notice things and put those, uh, join those dots together. And that's what, that's what makes it so hard and that's what makes uh, sports nutritionists so excellent because often they are the people that can finally do that. It isn't the doctors that uh, will pick up on it early. I'll pick, it up, I'll pick up on it once people have stress fractures. Um, so yeah, it would be nice if it worked. Um, I think it's still a, a, way, a fair bit off that. So there certainly, at the moment, wouldn't be changing the way I, the way I would use them. The last articles were on uh, fasted diets and protein synthesis. Um, again, as I as I do my own fasted dieting, desperately trying to find justification for the the ways I, I'm deciding to do my training at the moment this was more look this so this was in obesity research journal it's called eight hour time restricted eating does not lower daily myofibril protein synthesis rates a randomized controlled trial um hawley as the as the last author um and small study 18 people older with relatively high bmi so average age 40 46 average bmi about 30 and they were wanting to see whether or not the protein synthesis rates dropped. So as, as we all tell everyone and, and, and we all know that if you want to get the protein synthesis rates up, you need to be eating lots of protein and you need to be doing it as often as possible, at least three times a day, ideally more. Um, so what happens about when you're fasting? Presumably, you're going to struggle to get the amount of protein in, especially if you're just doing a one meal a day fast, and you're not going to be having those regular meals. So the, the protein synthesis will drop. What this paper said was actually the protein synthesis doesn't seem to drop that much. Did a bit, but not significantly. I wasn't particularly keen on the, the protein levels they, they used, which was one gram per kilogram. Um, I think it would have been a much more useful study if they'd had a few different protein levels in there, especially going up to the sort of levels that we're, most of us are generally recommending as a minimum, minimum now, if you're trying to uh, trying to lose weight. Why would you have a fairly low protein intake in, in, in a study like this if, um, if you know that that leads to higher carbohydrate eating? Not a great study, interesting. Um, I, I don't think it will change anything I'm, I'm doing at the moment because of how it was done, but um, I'm sure there'll be more to come from, from that group and hopefully um, something a bit more useful. 
So that's uh, that's it for today. I hope you've had a uh, great weekend. Hope you managed to get some training in, and I will chat to you soon.